This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 89. Project Up on Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. The Project Up on Podcast is also brought to you by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance, so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything, that is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from gumleafusa.com. And by CZ USA Shotguns, if you're looking for a shotgun, to carry into the uplands, CZUSA has you covered from side-by-sides to over-unders to semi-autos, 
Whatever it is that you're looking for, CZUSA has a shotgun for you. Find out more about them and their guns at cz-usa.com. And finally, buy Dakota 283 kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. Frame steel door, one-piece rotomold design. Everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Find out more about them at dakota283.com. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Jake from Washington. Jake left us a review on the iTunes podcast app. And anybody out there listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that by leaving us a rating, leave the show a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. The new year's underway, and we're halfway through January. I'm looking ahead to February. It's going to be a busy month. We've got our public grouse tour kicking off in collaboration with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, as well as one of the biggest upland celebrations all year, Pheasant Fest, coming to Minneapolis this year. Hope to see some folks at both the Public Grouse Film Festival and Pheasant Fest next month. Head over to backcountryhuntersandanglers.org as well as pheasantsforever.org for information on both events. All right, let's get into today's podcast episode. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Gerhardt Stevenson. I had the good fortune of meeting Gerhardt when I was in Lander, Wyoming last June at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation Films of the Feathered event. Had a great time out there. Got to connect with Gerhardt. Turns out we had a few mutual friends, and of course, we share the same passion, which is upland bird hunting. Today, we talk all about Gerhardt's upland story, upland bird hunting in Wyoming, as well as a recent trip he took to New Mexico hunting scaled quail, and a whole bunch more. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Gerhardt Stevenson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Gerhardt. How you doing today, man? Doing great. What's the weather like out there in Wyoming? Well, it's actually pretty nice right now. It, it's it's up, it's nudging up toward the twenties. It's sunny, no wind right now. That's that's a big one. Yeah, there's not a lot uh, not a lot to slow it down out that way. Well, we got mountain ranges, but sometimes it seems to speed the wind up. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine you get some you get some interesting air currents out there. Well, that we do. Fight them pretty good. Yeah, at least I don't have to be jealous of your weather. You know, this time of year, sometimes when I'm talking to folks in other areas of the country, they they make me jealous. Although, don't get me wrong, I do fully embrace the four seasons we get here in Minnesota, and I appreciate most of them. And we're about the same. We're actually we're going to crack twenty today, and anything above twenty degrees this time of year feels really really nice. So I'll probably get outside, take the dog for a run. And uh, it'll probably feel pretty good. We got the sun out and not too much wind either, Gerhardt. Understood. Yeah, I might make you a little jealous. I might take the dog out for a run, but we might hunt chuckers today. Somehow I knew you were going that way. <laughs> yeah, now now you are making me <laughs> jealous. <resist. laughs> well, I'm happy that you and a whole bunch of other people are still out there enjoying the upland bird season, which is it's kind of, you know, it's interesting. Once you get over the new year, it's obviously... It's a new year. It feels like people shouldn't be still hunting birds in the current season, but they certainly are. And maybe we should start there. I know you just got back from a trip. There's a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about, but let's do the normal checklist of items. Just let people know where you're at and the opportunity you have to potentially get out and hunt chuckers this afternoon. I live in Hudson's, West Central Wyoming. It's, I guess you'd call it a map dot. 
but you know, people generally don't know where it's at. I tell, tell them it's the steakhouse between Lander and Riverton. <laughs> That's about all that's here. The steakhouse and a post office. <laughs> so, but we do have a, a good variety of birds in the area. Our hunting's been pretty hit or miss this year. We had some real major hailstorms come through, and one of the really good areas, probably 80 miles from where I live, it was just been devastated. And locally, we had it wasn't the golf ball size hail; it was just the sheer quantity of it. The, the most popular area to hunt chuckers where I live. They had eight to twelve inches of hail during the hatch. Wow! So that has been that's definitely been a limiter. But the good news is the places the hail didn't hit, there are birds. You know, it's it, it's spotty, but when you find birds, you might find a lot of them. And and that has been pretty universal throughout the species we have. We have blue and rough grouse, sage grouse, Hungarian partridge, and chuckers. And we we do have a, a small population of wild pheasants also. Yeah. So when you, you find the, the sweet spots in between the disaster zones, there are plenty of birds to hunt. You just have to have a, a list, a long list of spots to try. And beginning of the year, it, it became readily apparent that we were going to have to work at it, but we found those spots. Yeah, I imagine any season it's like that. You know, you're trying to figure out where the isolated hot spots are, where the bird populations did well, and out your way, just the opportunity that you have to hunt multiple species across multiple habitat types. And I know, I believe I talked about this when I interviewed Sam from Wyoming Wildlife Federation. I was out in Lander last June. That's where I met you, Gerhardt. And I was just ignorant to it, but I was really surprised at the variety of upland bird hunting opportunities you guys have in that area. And I was, I was surprised by it. And of course, very interested in it, but that's, that's pretty unique for you to be able to really spread out, you know, kind of go any direction and probably get into a little different kind of habitat and a little different kind of bird. Yeah. It's one of the blessings we have. We'll never be noted for anything other than sage grouse. Obviously that's we are the nation's stronghold for sage grouse. We have no shortage of them. But beyond that, in, in any given year, you really don't count on it being stellar hunting for anything else. But the variety more than makes up for it. And every once in a while, we do get lucky. You get the perfect set of combinations of moisture, but it's not too wet and cold during the hatch. And periodic rains actually make it through the entire summer. It, those years can be special. You get all of a sudden, in one year, you can have know of 50 different cubbies of chuckers to hunt and you cherish those years because you know it's probably going to be another decade before you see that again maybe longer sure but just having so many different kinds of birds to hunt and habitat types september is when our first season's open we get morning dove which around here is ranks from dismal to fair (laughs) we just we're not we're not dove country yeah but there are some around the blue and rough grouse opens up at that time and it's nice to get out of the heat down here in the valley of the opener, it, it can be 90 to 100 degrees. You never know. Sometimes you get lucky, it's only 70. But you go up in the high country where it's 40, 50, 60 degrees, perfect weather. The mosquitoes have died off a few weeks earlier, and it's pretty heavenly. And if you get into some grouse, and that it just it makes for the perfect day. That'd be nice to be able to drive up and out of mosquito country. That's a, that's a nice little thing to have in your back pocket. Summer doesn't work. Summer, it's what well, we call it. We call them mosquitoes, the Wind River Air Force, and they live up to their reputation. <laughs> but the hatch cycle, <laughs> thankfully, the hatch cycle goes up about 500 foot in elevation per week. So in June, you can get above them. July, if you go 
up really high, like eleven to twelve thousand feet, you can get above them. Then they they top out. They're bad up at the upper up on timberline for a week or so. Then in early to mid August, they die off and they're gone. And that is that's something we look forward to every year. <laughs> I bet. In the last three weeks of August, the fishing, and then you're up in that country and you see a few grouse here and there, and you know, you go back during hunting season, or sometimes you do both. You, I've I've taken a two weight fly rod in my game bag while grouse hunting and made a combo out of it for golden trout or, or brook trout. It's kind of a unique little adventure. Yeah, definitely nice. Anytime you can cast and blast it, that's it's nice to have that opportunity. Yeah, there's no shortage of there's no shortage of scenery out there. When I was there in June, it was my first time out there and drove up into the mountains a little bit and really got to and out into the sage flats and got to see, you know, for only being there 48 hours or so, I did did get to see quite a few a, a, a decent bit of the country, which was which was really neat. I mean, it's it's right there at your fingertips. It's it's a cool area. What are the seasons? What are the seasons like? I mean, what can you still hunt this time of year? Is it just chucker, or is everything kind of open? How does that work for you? Most things have closed down the New Year's Eve. Okay. But we have chucker and Hungarian partridge, and then duck actually closed yesterday. And Canada goose is open through the 16th of February. That's something new they tried last year. It's kind of a double-edged sword on that one, because to get the extra days in February, you lose the days in in October, so... Your season when you can actually go out and set goose decoys in a t-shirt, it's only like eight days long. But the good news is, in the end of season, there are more birds around. Right. So that's what I'll end up closing my season out with because, well, it's the last chance. Unless by some chance I go someplace south and warm again at the end of season. (laughs) If the schedule allows it, I I am tempted. Very tempted. So if you're going to end your season on geese, does that mean the 10-gauge is going to see some action here pretty soon? Yeah, well, I get my... Hunting geese, I usually carry a small gun and a big gun. I'll have the 10-gauge. Okay. And then I'll have a 20 or a 16 or something there with me, too. If When geese come in right and perfect like they like they, they should, but <laughs> seldom do, when you get them close, it's, it really is fun to shoot them with a, a small-gauge gun. Yeah. You get them down right there, their feet and your face. I'd rather pick up the little gun. <laughs> and, and I did that in North Dakota. I actually shot... Shot some geese one morning with an old L.C. Smith 16-gauge. Nice. 10, you know, it, it, it's a valuable tool when you need it. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk to you about shotguns, but I think we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. I, I want to start with, you know, you've told us kind of where you're at. Have you, did you grow up in that area? And along with that question, what was your intro to upland hunting like? Okay, that's quite a bit there, actually. <laughs> I grew up... Ooh, a variety of places. I was born on the other side of the mountain range. Okay. Down in Rock Springs. And it wasn't too long after that, I was two and a half years old, we moved to Africa. So Dad was an iron worker and heavy rigging man, structural engineer, back in the days when an engineer carried a calculator and a card full of mathematical formulas in his pocket. Uh, that took him around the world a couple times. We, we lived in what, what used to be Zaire, it's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Wow. I remember seeing some pretty neat sights. You know, it's not a, not too many places in the world you get to watch people riding elephants and carrying like 500 pounds of stuff bounced on their head. Sure. It was, it was pretty neat. We came home when I was five, obviously pre-bird hunting years. We lived in Rock Springs for a number of years and 
folks bought a, bought the house on this side of the mountain, but they were still working down there. And then we moved to the job. The dad got a job at that local iron ore mine, and it, it closed down shortly thereafter. It, most of our relatives were working in Montana, so we shuffled up there and lived out of a camper for a few months in the winter. Then a job offer came along to go to Indonesia, and away we went. Saw some neat things there and some disturbing things, but anyhow, I was glad to come back to the United States on that one. Really glad. After that, we've pretty much stayed here ever since. And then, the you know, we growing up, I really went into hunting or fishing or anything. I was into bicycle stunts, things like that. But the house is right above a creek, right below the barn. You have a stream with trout in it. And I wasn't a very good fisherman as a child, but the neighbor kids were. And they got me pointed in the right direction. And I just went berserk with this fishing thing. That's all I wanted to do. Eventually, in high school years come along, and every year, come hunting season, my friends would abandon me like stale bread. <laughs> I was fishing <laughs> by myself. And I go, come on, let's go fishing. The Browns are running. And, you know, I was like, Cause it was really, fall fishing here is really good. And they're like, no way, we're going to miss a day of hunting for, for fish. And finally, they convinced me that, that hunting was even better than fishing. Well, I tried deer hunting, and well, it never really took but the bird hunting, I absolutely loved. It got to the point where I quit fishing for probably 10 years. Eventually, I got back into fishing because I got tired of sitting around for better half of the year wishing it was hunting season. Yeah, <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and and I'm glad I got back into the fishing. You know, it, that's been wonderful. But bird hunting is still my favorite outdoor pursuit. But that's how I got started on it. First hunt was a sage-grouse hunt. The friend knew a spot where the birds had been week or two earlier so I, I begged dad for use of his truck which was a big deal because at the time folks they were pretty strapped for cash so to ask to borrow a full-size truck to drive up over the mountain to go bird hunting and ask you know for a little extra gas might be on what i had in my own pocket was asking a lot but dad understood and he let us go and we drove around all over and we got walks and spots nothing nothing and we actually went back the next day as the last day of season it was on a weekend, so we we had our two days off of school. And once again, didn't see anything. And we're getting up on almost sundown. And back then, shooting hours actually went till dark. It wasn't didn't stop at sundown like it does now. So we we had a little bit of time and driving along and just two completely clueless kids. And all of a sudden, I look and there's this swarm of sage grouse waddling away from the truck. So obviously, we stopped and got out and flushed them, and we got one or two and. The back then, the limit was three. Uh, we watched where they went and en route to reflush, and we flushed another group and then another group, and I'd never seen anything like that. I was hooked. We must have seen four or five coveys. And, of course, the season was over by the time we got home. So uh, later on, friends took me to a spot where we shot a couple ducks, and then the next year we decided to put some effort into this and got first pheasant. Eventually got first chucker. That one took a while. I think it wasn't until, I think it might, well, yeah, it was my senior I did get my first chucker senior year. It was a big deal. I remember going out. And once again, my buddies had abandoned me like stale bread because it was like the opener for elk. So I was on my own again. <laughs> but God took pity on me and put a cub of chuckers where, where anyone could have spotted them. <laughs> the chase was on. And I, I go, I pull off the side of the road and I don't know if they even shut the truck off. I just grabbed the shotgun and took off running. I think the truck was still running and the door hanging open. The stereo was still playing. 
<laughs> I I closed a couple hundred yard gaps and uh, yard gap in record time, and the checkers went racing up the, the steep rocky mountainside, and then they flew. For some reason, that they just seemed too big. I'd never seen one actually up close in person. I'd seen some up on the ridge across from the house where you know I lived, but that was they they were just dots. So I thought they were they were smaller. I just stood like a, like a dummy, just watched them fly away, thinking that they were sharp-tailed grouse, which we don't actually have here in this part of the state. I didn't know that. And then uh, as I they're going, I see the barred su- markings on their sides, and I'm like, no, <laughs> it just blew it. And, you know, as anyone who hunts chuckers will learn, the straggler is your salvation. Ah, uh, yeah. One late bird jumped up. And by divine intervention luck, or maybe a rare display of shooting skill, I hit that bird. <laughs> and I was just, I was on top of the world at that moment. And this bird just tumbled down, down, down. And I was ignorant to the uh, obvious effects of gravity at the moment. And here I'm without a dog looking for my bird. And I searched for 20 minutes. <laughs> I thought I was going to cry. I couldn't find this bird. All, all this time for a year, we, my buddies and I had talked about these chatters. And I finally got one and I can't find it. And my buddy with the dog, of course, he's off hunting elk. Yep. So, by our desperation, I look like 200 yards down the mountain, and then I see it, a big patch of feathers where a bird had just bounced off a sharp rock. So, bird playing connect the dots, there's a feather, there's a feather. So, I found my bird all the way at the bottom of the mountain. No way. <laughs> but I was happy. Uh, and I went looking for him, looking for him. I, I didn't know where they'd gone. I hadn't paid enough attention. And right around sundown, I stumbled. I was coming down the one side of a little canyon just stumbles onto them. Sort of, they flushed on the other side of the little canyon from me. They were in range, and I proceeded to put put three around someplace that weren't a chucker. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I was happy. I had I had my first chucker, so all was good. Yeah. So humble, humble beginnings as an upland hunter, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, getting out there, running around the country, and trying to find whatever birds you can, trying to shoot whatever birds you see. That that sounds familiar. That's that's the way a lot of people get started. It was tough. So the first, I hunted for a number of years without a dog. So it was just sheer leg muscle and, yep. and determination. It, I would never want to go back to hunting without a dog. But I will admit that I learned I learned a lot hunting without a dog. Yeah. Things that have been useful ever since. Having knowledge of the birds and their habits, when you combine that with the dog and work as a team, it is a good one-two punch for, for locating birds. Absolutely. I spent quite a few years, 10, 15 years, hunting rough grouse without a dog, and that's the way I look at it, too. I think I learned a lot about the birds during that period of time that helps me now. Now, certainly my dog and hunting hunting now has taught me a lot more that I didn't learn back then just because of the two different approaches, but there's some synergy that works between those approaches, I think, that that makes you a better hunter, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. Given your experiences hunting without a dog in in that country with the variety of birds, what is the what's the easiest bird? And maybe easy is a bad word, but what's like what's the easiest bird to hunt without a dog? And then what's the hardest bird to hunt without a dog? Just given your experiences. Oh, oh, for the easiest, I'd say probably blue grouse and sage grouse to hunt without a dog. Sage grouse just because. There's so many miles of prairie road you can drive around sure. and find water holes. And you show you show up near water at the right times of day, the birds will be near water. That and sage grouse feed 
one of the things you got going to cover. You know, it's the pheasant mentality, and we've we've all we've all gone down that road. Pull that plant to other birds, but you think you everyone know, be looking for the heavier sage when they're feeding. They're in stuff no higher than your ankle, so you can actually visit visibly see the birds out there. Yeah, but it, it is you know you have a it provides a little advantage. You know when the birds big enough, you can actually see it. And the blue grouse they'll migrate up for the winter. They're they're reverse migrators. So when you get up to the find the elevation that they're at and walk around enough, you're going to see some. And of course, any bird if you get snow and look for tracks, that that's a given. Sure. And the hardest to hunt without them when we're out, oh, either chuckers or pheasants. Probably pheasants because they stay in the cover where you don't see them, and they'll they'll run this way and double back behind you and things of that sort. Chuckers, at least you still have a chance of, of seeing them on a rocky outcropping or see them running ahead of you. Right. Or the once in a while you get lucky and you hear them talking, you hear them calling. Okay. Whereas pheasants, our pheasant hunting is it's a heavy cover ordeal here. If you're hunting wild pheasants in Wyoming, you're hunting Russian olives. It's it's what it's what they live. A lot of species live off of Russian olives here. Where you find the Russian olives is usually along creek bottoms, and there's a lot of other brush mixed in with it. So you got your work cut out for you with pheasants here, and a dog is absolutely indispensable. That said, I've I remember been college hunting the put and take areas where they release birds and just simply walking edges, you know ditches and things like that and bumping into a bird at random here or there yeah but the wild birds it's a different ball game well you mentioned sage grouse i did want to ask you about that as far as targeting sage grouse because i hunted them once and so i have very very limited experience in that but the thing that just kind of took me is you know you look out over Whereas somebody might come to the rough grouse woods and look and say, well, all these woods look the same. It's my first time in new country. So I look out and you see endless expanse of sage and you think to yourself, how the heck do you find these birds? How do you target them other than just keep moving? And one of the things that was mentioned to me at the time was water. And you mentioned that again. So is that to just talk about a few of the, a few of the techniques you employ to better your odds at finding some sage grouse out there? Yeah, it's, one of the things experience helps because you you know areas that hold birds. But yeah, it's like everything else. You look for edges. Okay. Birds will will work along edges, and those edges are different with chuckers than sage grouse, and different with sage grouse than they are with rough grouse. But with time, you learn to spot them. And in the mornings and late evenings, the sage grouse will get up on the hilltops and be feeding out in some pretty sparse stuff. Amazingly sparse, but. Then they'll they'll gravitate fairly soon to locations where there are ribbons of heavier sage, taller stuff, you know, knee high and whatnot. And you'll find them along those edges, and sometimes you'll find oh that leads to a little pocket where it all kind of dead ends, and and they'll hunker in that stuff during the the resting hours, as you call it, you know, dusting and preening and whatnot. So that 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 helps narrow it down a lot because you look out across. You know the, the sagebrush plains. It, you know that prairie. All it does, on first glance, it all looks the same. Yeah. But there, there are little ribbons out there where the sage is a little taller and a little lower, and I tend to follow those. They're like any other creature. They they want easy access to everything. Sure. They want to be able to duck out of cover, duck into cover. Uh, a bird that has to travel a long ways between out in the open, they're more vulnerable to predators. Yeah. So generally speaking, those same 
rules of survival for upland game birds are going to apply. They want they want food, water, shelter in a in a close area, and if you can begin to pattern those things and figure out what it looks like on a particular landscape, you've got a pattern that you can hopefully repeat for success, which that makes sense. That kind of applies across the board. And obviously you've got plenty of experience hunting out West. Yeah. The, the toughest one to spot that with is the scaled quail. It's taking me a long time to spot any differences there, but okay. anyway, it's, but the other thing uh, concept is least common denominator where you look at, okay, the bird, all these needs that you just mentioned for the bird, which of those is in shortest supply? If it's water, then you, you put extra emphasis on finding water. Got if it's it. food, you put extra emphasis on finding the feeding areas. And if it's if it's overhead cover to protect from the raptors, then you start looking at that. And that seems to be you know that seems to be a pretty good system, no matter what kind of bird you're hunting. You know, so like if you go out to you're hunting the Midwest for pheasants, and literally there there are crops and food as far as the eye can see in any direction, then that's probably not going to be the, the the thing that that concentrates birds, where if you have very little brushy cover or tall grass, that's probably going to be what you need to, to focus on is finding it where, where those things meet the the crops. That sounds damn good in theory. That's a that's a that's a really good way to look at bird hunting. I think you know take stock in what the birds need, and if they're for whatever reason, if one of those things is in the least supply, you might want to focus on that that's a that's a damn good strategy gerhart yeah well that you know whatever's in, in greatest demand shortest supply is going to draw the most birds for sure it's kind of like when you have these natural disasters around the country what, what's the first thing that everyone stocks up on bottled water yeah you know, every, everyone runs to the store to get bottled water well if, you know, if you're in a drought and there's water available the birds are all going to run to water it's pretty helpful it's helped me a lot i know and one of the some of the places where we hunt partridges here, north of here, the Huns, you have a lot of good cheat grass feed, lots of it. But the the big thing is that you got to find the the bitter brush, you know, the good scraggly prickly stuff that they like to hide under to stay away from the falcons and hawks. I've noticed as soon as you get away from those little stripes of brushy cover, you just don't find any Huns. So it it just comes back to that least common denominator. So one more thing on the sage grouse before we perhaps transition a little bit. I know from talking to Sam, Wyoming went down to a nine-day season this year, right? Nine or ten, something like that. Okay. Well, they basically give you two weekends, and if it's you know, and then there's the opener of antelope season. They try to kind of coincide, and so it varies anywhere from nine days to two weeks, based on how the calendar lays out each year. Okay. How long has it been? that sort of time frame as opposed to like, I mean, I, I guess what I want you to do is put it into perspective for us in that did sage grouse season used to be months on end and now it's only nine to 14 days or what does it look like historically? Uh, historically here, we had about a month with a three bird limit. Okay. And then the, in Montana, they were, their season I think was three months. Realistically, I don't know that season dates really make much of a difference, or season length, I should say, makes much difference. Studies have shown that something like 90% of the harvest occurs on the opening weekend. Now, in recent years, I've seen more sage-grouse hunters and people hunting past the, the opener because there was some talk about threatened species listing. Sure. So that, that really motivated a lot of people to say, hey, you know, 
we need to experience this while we can. But anyway, we were traditionally about a month. I remember actually that second year I hunted sage grouse going out and hunting them in August because they opened it on Labor Day weekend. So I remember actually hunting August 28th. Huh. The only time I ever got to hunt birds in August. Then we had a series of droughts and they were bad. And it, it really beat down the sage grouse. Then, then you'd have a wet year or two and they were, they'd just flourish. And then we had some back-to-back droughts where the birds only had a, a break of a year or two in between where they had good conditions to, to multiply. That's about time they, they started restricting it. It's been some time ago. I can't put an actual number on it, but it's been, it's probably been 15 years ago. Okay. So it, it, it is short and, you know, we cherish it. And there are travels. I actually, you know, the place I kind of want to go in late September but I stay home because of the sage grouse. Sure. That's also when our September rains hit any, across this part of the, you know, this entire portion of the nation anyway. The West gets hit with the September rains about the first week of September, and you can get rained on anyway, so no sense in going too far. And that that affects the sage grouse. You, you have a good pattern figured out. If you, scouting for them, what you do is you actually look for grasshoppers in August. Okay. You find the grasshoppers, that's where their birds are going to be. And they don't trans, you know, the the chicks will transition off the grasshoppers, but they're still in those areas. Once the September rains hit, they're gone. They they start mi- they're migrating toward their winning wintering areas. It starts almost immediate. And all of a sudden, you find them here today, and they're gone tomorrow. If you if you know where they winter, you just keep leapfrogging that direction, and eventually you'll you'll bump into them. But they might move, you know, in a few days they might move quite a few miles. Yeah. You wouldn't think a big old bird that ambles along as slow as they do. Would cut would go that far, but you figure he they're ambling along like that every daylight hour. They can su- cover a surprising amount of ground. Yeah, well, I mean, most grouse are pretty capable of definitely using their legs to their advantage. But I have read that I think I've read recently that sage grouse they are absolutely capable of some pretty significant migrations. I mean, tens if not you know over a hundred miles. I don't know, I think sixty seventy miles. I feel like I've I've read something like that. It's common. We have research team that sets up camp behind town every spring, and they've got one of the, the grouse lecks. They've got all kinds of scientific equipment on it all the time, and cameras and microphones, you name it. But the birds that they observe here during the breeding season typically actually nest 20 to 30 miles away. Some of them stay stick local, but a lot of them go clear up on the on the divide. So they they, they will move. Yep. And come winter, they may move longer businesses and i've you, you, in this country in my travels i bump into that once in a while a, a large group of them migrating and you'll see just hundreds and hundreds of them for miles wow and you go back a couple of days later and they're they're all gone and you'll find them maybe five miles away they're they're headed to where they're going to spend the winter interesting well you mentioned traveling a little bit so let's use that as a as a segue because despite all of the opportunity you have right there at your fingertips i know you're a pretty adventurous guy and you definitely like to get out and experience different opportunities for bird hunting in different places and you recently just returned from a trip down to it was new mexico or was it arizona new mexico new mexico tell us about that trip a little bit well that was it was an adventure yeah War chest, but this time of year is getting pretty well depleted. <laughs> I start saving, I start saving money to travel. Like in, I'll start saving money next month for next bird season to start traveling. 
uh, to save money, I decided that oh, I'm down, I'm headed downwards. The weather's warm. I don't need my camper, and I, I didn't want to stay in a hotel. There's an oil boom that's going on down there, and if you've ever stayed in a hotel during an oil boom, sleep sleep is <laughs> it doesn't come easy <laughs> <laughs> because there's people coming and going at any hour of the day or night. So yeah. you get the doors slamming, and that stuff wakes me up. So I I didn't want to you know, stay in a hotel. Plus, during a boom, the a hotel rates just become astronomical anyway. Yeah. But actually, I'll, I'll sleep in the back of the truck. I drive the little two-wheel drive beater Ranger with a topper on it. And I'll just sleep in the back of that. Well, it was a lot colder down there than I thought it was going to be. So there were some there were some cold nights. The first night was interesting. It's a thousand. It was a thousand and seventy-eight miles from my doorstep to where I camped that first night. And start got up early in the morning and just drove straight through. I was tired when I got there. And had had plenty of stops, so that added a few hours. And anyway, I get there about twelve thirty, and get to sleep about one a.m. And I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and there's a bulldozer parked there, and there's an old mine shaft that's fenced off next to me. I, I picked that spot as a familiar spot where there was level ground. Anyway, I get go to sleep at about one a.m. Two thirty, here come the security folks from the mining company. Light, light, light up my truck and. Well, I got to open the truck and chat with them for a while. Now I'm awake. Oh, man. Uh, eventually, so eventually I go back to sleep. 5.30, I hear a semi coming down this dead-end road. And sure enough, he backs in right next to my truck and loads that bulldozer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So you thought you were so, in for some peace and quiet avoiding I, the hotel, and uh, that wasn't uh, the case. <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll get to the whole peace and quiet concept here in a minute. How hard of a time that did that? How hard of a time did that security team give you? Oh, not much. They did explain what what was going on. They had had you know, last time I'd been there in 2016. The gates were open. I walked in and looked down the shaft. It was kind of neat. Okay. See a retired mining the retired mining shaft. Well, they they had you know gates closed and locked and all kinds of stuff. Now they said people had been going down in the mine and stealing the. The copper, I think the copper wire. Oh boy! And then they had some other people that had went in there, and since there's a building there, still has electricity to it, and they were stealing electricity when they were camping. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so the guy who loaded the bulldozer, he really knew his stuff. I was, I actually was impressed. I wasn't too happy to be awake, but he got that thing loaded, buckled down, and was gone in half an hour. Wow! He'd done that before. Yeah. So anyway, I just I pulled my stocking hat over my eyes to keep the morning light from getting to them when the, as the sun started getting up. And along seven o'clock comes, and here comes another security officer. So I chatted with her for a while. If I just waved the white flag, say, "Okay, I'm hunting quail with no sleep today," <laughs> I give up. Yeah, <laughs> I know when I'm licked. Oh, I went. I went. You know, I drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> More than I probably should have, but I needed it. I really needed it. <laughs> and away we went. And I can hear Quail calling. I can hear him calling just about 100 yards from where I was having my little bowl of cereal and my coffee. I finally got all ready for the day and went out there. And oh, They'd done moved on. But we ended up finding two cubbies within half a mile of the camp. They kept us pretty busy. They were big cubbies. So, so it, it went, went, went better than it should have. I actually was able to... Hit the birds, you know, the shooting average won't exactly qualify for any award. Huh? <laughs> I did better than I thought I should have, and I was pretty happy with that. That night, I moved out on the old railroad bed about 
quarter of a mile just to stay away from the security folks. And friends came over from the Galveston area. He set up camp actually on the other side. We hung out there for a while. It was pretty noisy. There was heavy equipment running around us all the time. And the, the highways, it never stops. So the semi is hauling cr- crude oil. It just, it just 24 seven, they're running. Uh, I finally found a new place to camp after about a week, went out someplace else where there was still heavy equipment, but it was a constant hum, not an intermittent hum. Yeah. That oil field traffic was something I've seen oil field traffic before, but wow, it's, it was the bad thing I saw in Williston, North Dakota during that boom. Sure. We had to go to the highway, turn left, go 400 yards and turn right to go where we were going to hunt that day. And we, it, it was like a traffic jam in Chicago. As far as I could see, it was bumper to bumper traffic. I thought, how on earth are we going to do this? We sat there and sat there and sat. <laughs> Finally, we got lucky. It was on a on a hill, a similar of grade, and here come an oversized load, and he was losing speed. <laughs> <laughs> we we took our opening, and we we did not let any dust gather under the tires. <laughs> At eight o'clock, it kind of dwindled out. At seven o'clock hour, you just you're not you're not crossing that highway. Yeah. without a lot of waiting. So that was kind of interesting, that just how busy that country has gotten, that southwest corner. There's not an inch of ground out there where you can camp where you're not going to have noise around you all the time. And I'll be honest, when I got home, I thought, yeah, after 10 days hunting, 11 nights in the bed of truck, I'm going to sit around and rest for a whole day. That solitude withdrawal so bad, I went chucker hunting. <laughs> I went to the nastiest country I know of where I've never seen another human being. <laughs> I needed it bad, but the, the bird hunting was, was good. It, it was it was fun, even though it was bu- you know busy country. There was one place, ironically, the, the highest concentration of birds was right where they put in a transfer battery three or four years earlier. It's kind of odd when your dog's on birds and you're you're waiting for a string of semis to get out of the way so you can shoot the birds. Oh my gosh! Out in the middle of nowhere, in these horrible, horrible dirt roads, like shake vehicles apart. These roads are why they invented the Raptor. <laughs> They're that bad. And you got semis out there. Wow. So that was something else. So educate me but for a second, Gary. What kind of, of fun. What kind of quail are you hunting there? A scaled quail. Scaled quail. Okay. It's about all you find out there be scalies. There are a few bob whites in wet years, really wet years. The they kind of the population does shift westward out of Texas. And some of the agricultural areas, they tell me you can find a few bob whites. But twice over the years, I actually have shot bob whites. The first time we actually found a an actual covey, an individual covey, and we got a couple flushes out of them. And then the last time was in 2016. I actually had a, a covey rise, a, a large covey of quail. They were blues or scalies, but there were bob whites mixed in with them. And I actually spotted the bob whites on the covey rise. I couldn't believe it, and I. I I shot for the bobwhites, and I got lucky, and I got two. Wow. Other, other than that, it's, it's all scaled quail. Now, the mountains, there's a few miles, miles, a few hours away. You can hunt Mern's quail in some of the mountain ranges. Okay. But it's it's not good Mern's quail hunting like people would expect in Arizona or on that side of New Mexico. But we did once long ago, and my buddy still lived down there. We did go up there, and we did find a covey, and it was amazing. And right now, you got the Tyler Webster and all these other people posting their Merns quail stuff on the yep. project on Atlanta site. And I'll be honest with you, it's killing me. I want to go so bad. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah. I, you see those, you see those little 
you know, that oak savanna habitat with just the golden grass and the little oak trees. I mean, it just, I mean, it looks beautiful. And then to think that you've got these Mern's quail in there that from what I'm told are, they, they are very cooperative of pointing dogs and it's just a, it sounds like it's just an awesome hunt. And yeah, I, I am, uh, I'm pretty envious right there with you, Gerhardt, seeing those pictures right now. They're almost too cooperative. The last Mern's quail I ever shot was tucked under a log. And as I had my previous dog, she's a little tiny border collie, like 23 pounds. And my buddy's lab, they were just obsessed with the area around this log. We searched and searched and searched. I stepped over, literally stepped over this bird, I mean, directly over it, three times without flushing. The fourth time I stepped over that log, it literally came out from between the toe of one boot and the heel of the other. So when they decide to sit, they will really sit tight. Yeah. That was that was amazing. The covey rise, though, that is, it's, it's incredible. I remember the high-pitched whistling sound that one of them made, or a couple of them made. It just has stuck with me ever since. I'm thinking I really need to go, and I'm tempted to maybe see if I can get over there before the season closes. I have a couple of chances where I might have the time and be sleeping in the bed of the truck again. Be more shivering with the dog huddled up next to me. But it would probably be worth it. But I've, I've hunted the western part of the state for scaled quail and gambles, and there's a lot, there's a lot of nice remote country, and it's quiet, and you, you won't have the oil field trucks rumbling around you and all that stuff. I've thought really hard about going, you know how it is when you live up north. It, it, sometimes it's nice to go someplace where you can wear a t-shirt and not hike through snow. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and if I can scrape up the money, I just might. And the local game warden down there had told me where to find Merns, and it's only, it's only like 50 miles away from the country I'm familiar with. Okay. So I'm, I'm kicking the idea around. I don't know that it'll happen. Like I said, the war chest has been pretty well drained. <laughs> well, you sounds like you got a plan for next year already, so that's that's good to hear. You're you're always thinking ahead, Gerhardt. Yeah, for next year, I want to focus really hard on prairie chickens. If there's, there's one regret I, I have as a bird hunter is that I never hunted lessers when I had the chance. And, and no, now nobody gets to hunt lessers, so they they list them as a threatened species. It's one of the things you don't realize what you have till it's gone. I know it's cliche, but yeah. I got I got some old books and I really like Tom Huzzer's The Grouse of North America. You know, and every time I look at that and see the pictures and read about him hunting westers, there there's some remorse there that I, I never did it. Thinking there are plenty of greater prairie chickens; they're in good shape. I really should go enjoy that again. It's been a long time since I hunted prairie chickens well i tried last year but i went too late in the year and they literally migrated out of the area much in nebraska i was ignorant of the fact that they migrate 50 60 miles south for the winter found a lot of sharp tails had great sharp tail hunting but i only saw six prairie chickens and they were not in range (laughs) so i need to go back in september or october and do that again and it's not that far for me it's maybe i think it's less than 500 miles and that time of year, sleep in the back of a truck, you know, you can get it done pretty cheap. Well, it doesn't cost much to go do something like that. Tell me about your bird dog, Gerhardt. You mentioned mentioned dogs a couple of times, and I think it would be uh, it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't talk about your uh, your bird dog. Yeah, he's unique. Uh, yep. Good border collie, sable coat border collie. So he's uh, in orange and white. Not your standard bird hunter's choice, of course. But and that all started back when. My early bird hunting years, I was 
tired of not having a dog and told dad, hey, we need to get a bird dog. And before I was born, he had raised hounds and Britneys and setters and English pointers. You know, really? I don't know if I mentioned Britney or not. Anyhow, he, he, he'd been a dog guy. You know? So I thought this would be an easy sell. Well, he didn't want the, the uh, mischief or the expense of having two dogs. We did all trail shots of the hunt birds. I went, Why is he ain't a bird dog? At the time I wanted a lab. All my friends had a lab, so I wanted a lab. Well, it wasn't happening. So no choice in the matter. If I'm going to have a bird dog, it's going to be the Border Collie Blue Hitter mix we <laughs> we already had. And I said, well, you know, Dad convinced me that you can you could train any dog. And I, I didn't believe him, but I thought, well, <laughs> this is this is the program I have available to me. Let's do what Dad says. Yeah. What a surprise. Dad knew more than I did. <laughs> I did what he told me to. And they did she, you know, what they call fair to midland bird dog. She was never a great dog, bird dog. You know, you know, you'd really brag on a whole lot. But every time I took her out, she did find birds. So if I put her where there were birds, she would eventually find them. So, it, I, you know, and the more she did that, the better she got at and the more impressed I got. And she ended up finishing up probably as an average dog. She had her quirks, of course, but yep. we could live with them. <laughs> and, you know, like, retrieving was in, was an interesting deal. A small bird she'd bring back to you, the bigger the bird, the less she would pack it. Sage grouse, she, she, she'd, just, she'd just go sit, sit by it. There one, one couple times we had multiple sage grouse down, and she actually carried them to where the other one was. And, and, and set them in the ponds, laid down, and looked at us like, "Come get them." <laughs> Here they are. <laughs> kind of comical. Kind of comical. Yeah, I would say. But anyway, yeah, I decided I kind of liked the border collie thing, and started to get. You know, when she got old, I started getting serious about finding another one. And my folks surprised the heck out of me that Christmas with a pup. The local shelter had a couple of them, and they went and got one for me. And so she turned out to be an absolute little angel. She was a a bird finding machine, but a lousy retriever. And I never could figure out why, because you throw a ball, she'd bring it, throw a frisbee, she'd bring it, throw a stick, she'd bring it back. Why won't she bring birds? Then one day, many years later, reading the little thing in a magazine, the top 10 mistakes or training sins or whatever it was titled, the things you never do when you're training a dog. And I'd done one of them. I'd given her a you know, bird wing in her as a puppy in her kennel at night. I put her in a little kennel at night and give her a bird wing to cultivate interest. Sure. Well, what I inadvertently did was teach her to pluck pluck birds. She never bit down on them, but she'd sit there and pick the feathers off them. <laughs> and I was like, well, that one falls squarely on me. That is a hundred percent my fault. Yeah. Well, everybody's everybody's. If I dropped them on the other side of a creek, she'd she'd bring it back across the creek, then she'd set it back down. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't make that mistake with Rusty, and he's a pretty good retriever. He seems like the laziest retriever on earth. And I used to think he was just messing with the bird, and it dawned on me he is exceptionally soft mouth. I started watching; he wasn't messing with the bird; he was sliding out of his mouth. He's so gentle with them that he, he won't bite down on them hard enough for him to not slide out of his mouth. He'd get halfway back and slip out of his mouth. And so he's gotten better about that. The first year or two, it drove me nuts. <laughs> it take you, it take him a minute to bring a bird back. Yeah, <laughs> but you never, you never had the problem of birds being all bit up. That of course, is, he set a bird down at your feet, and it was still alive. 
you better grab it. <laughs> <laughs> it might take off. Oh, guaranteed. Chase would be on. He'd go out and get it again, <laughs> which I think he liked. But yeah, I've kind of gotten on the Border Collie program, and they're exceptionally intelligent dogs. You can train them pretty easy. I, I like a, a dog that's easy to train, and I don't worry so much about the quote-unquote the nose. It's been my experience that the nose is there. It just needs the brain to, to know what to do with it. It seems like every dog I've ever seen, no matter what the breed, that's really good at finding birds, they seem to be pretty smart dogs. Yeah. So what's the hunt? What's the hunting style I, like in a border collie? Oh, uh, it actually varies a little bit, but it's a it'd be a fleshing dog. Okay. Although I imagine it'd be possible to teach one to point. Just never try to hunt such a wide variety of birds. I actually kind of like having a fleshing dog because some birds just don't want to play nice with a with a with a pointing dog. Scaled quail are notorious. Yeah. Of course, if you bust them up twice, after you flush them twice, then they usually will scatter up and half the cubby will hold the singles. Or if you can get them in knee-high grass, they'll hold like bob whites then a lot of times. But anyhow, so I kind of like the fleshing dog. Then one day, oh, I'd had Rusty, I think about three years, three or four years. He's seven now. I said, well, let's try an experiment. What about point on command? And I just used on a Covey of chuckers and they were running up the mountainside. And I was having a hard time keeping up. So what was going on? The chuckers and the dog were faster than I was going up that stuff. And I just hollered at him to sit. Gave him the sit command real emphatically, and he he sat. He didn't sit for long. He got back up my hard sit again. And I think I'd kind of make him sit like four times. I got up there and let him go, and he, I was in position for a shot. And I just let him run in and flush the, the, the covey, and ended up with a really nice. Covey Rizler fanned out against the sky overhead, just as pretty as can be. I thought, I like this program. I like this idea. And we've done it ever since. It, I don't do it all the time, but certain situations where it's a, it's an advantage, I'll make him sit. Scaled quail, I only made him sit twice the whole time I was down there. Those birds, I want them busted up. I want them busted up as soon as possible. Yeah. They'll just keep running. Yep. And scalies, they have no sense of direction. They most game birds will run away from you in a general direction, away from the hunter, away from the dog. Scaled quail, their their motto is go that way really fast. If someone something gets in your way, turn. That's it. <laughs> they don't care which way they turn. They might turn right four times and left three times, or one you know once each and then left seven times. You never. They just <laughs> you you can't predict what direction they're going to run. You'll see them go over a a sand dune. And you get there, and where are they? And all of a sudden, like thirty yards to the left and behind you. So with them, I don't make I don't make him sit unless I'm I've let him range too far. And when things are getting desperate, and I'm not finding birds. I'll let him range when I figure, okay, if he flushes them out of range, I can watch where they go, and we can start over. And then we at least now we know where to start. Yeah, I did make him sit a couple times like that when I I'd gotten I lagged behind a little too far. So, but I need to train him to, to herd. I mean, they're, they're a herding dog. <laughs> I could yeah. probably teach him to round these birds up and run them back to me. Because the first farmer I ever worked for when I was 13, he had a dog that would actually do that with his chickens. Every night, he'd go, Tippy, get the chickens. And he'd look around, he'd spot he a little banty, little bantam. He'd spot the first one, he'd chase that one until it got to the next one and the next one until they were all grouped up. He'd, he'd cut them this way and that way into the barn and into the coop. Every night, Bill would just stand there and close the gate. I've thought about that ever since. If I can figure out how to get my dog to do that on wild birds, it would be priceless. You just carry, You could just carry a cage out there and have 
have your dog herd them up and you could have them herd right into the cage. Actually, that would be part of the training program. I thought about how do I do this? I thought pen raise chucker. You clip <laughs> his primary flights and have a, a perfectly clean work area fenced in where there's nothing for the bird to hide under. The only way he can escape the dog is to come into the carrying pen, the little cage. And turning <laughs> loose, let the dog get him. Every time the dog gets to him, we yell, cut, or whatever the command would be. And that chucker would come back to that cage in front of you. And eventually it might become habit for the dog to chase, you know, just repetitious condition. The dog hears that command. And he, he knows the job is to run that bird straight at you. <laughs> One of these days I'm going to try it. And if I fail, well, I've had a, I've had a whole lot of fun trying. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You'll know what can't be done or what you couldn't do, I guess. But, you know, there are guys who run pointing breeds who do get their dogs to circle up and cut off chuckers. So I think it's possible. Yeah, I think that comes back to what you mentioned earlier, and that's the the brain, you know, the ups, upstairs and the dog. And a smart dog, given repeated exposure and continued opportunity, smart dogs are going to learn and they're going to figure out some nifty techniques, I think. Yeah, and, and repetition is, that's monumental. Yeah. If anyone gets a dog and they want to train it, people ask you, what makes a great dog? And exposure to wild birds as often as possible. The more they do it, the better they'll get. Yep. Well, what do you say we jump over to shotguns real quick? Okay. You have a you have a kind of a common affliction in upland bird hunters, and that is that you do have a, an appreciation and or a love for vintage shotguns, of which you have a few at least that I know of. When I when I met you out in Wyoming, we were that was one thing we were chatting about quite a bit and we were trying to connect so I could actually see some of your guns, but I ended up running out of time. But you got a number of vintage shotguns. What when did that get started? I mean, did you get was your first gun a vintage shotgun and then you just kind of carried that on or how did you get into that? No. And before I get started, you can actually see some of these guns on your your Facebook site right now. I just did a series of photo collections for people to look at, and then these guns are kind of sprinkled through there. Yep, I did so see I some of those get pictures. A views of them. But, but anyhow, I started with a, um, I guess sort of kind of did. First shotgun I ever fired was a Model 12 Winchester 16 gauge. All right, that yeah, that's uh, a vintage gun. I've got one of those step, sitting next step to brother, me. Stepbrother yep, still owns that gun. Uh, and Dad, for a lot of years, had a Winchester Model 21 two-barrel set, and unfortunately, he sold it back in the 80s with, for a price that was pretty good at the time, but right. you look at what they sell for now, yep. it, was like, you know, it was like a few percent of what they sell for now, and you're looking back like, oh, my word, yeah. <laughs> wish, we'd, wish we'd kept that. That would have been a nice but, one know, to have, just the way, way things are. Yep. But yeah, it had a skeet barrel set and a modified full set, and I remember I used to take it down to the creek and shoot it, and I didn't know anything about a whole lot about shotguns. Thinking now, thinking back, for him to turn a teenager loose with something like that says a lot. He really trusted me. <laughs> what gauge was that? Twenty gauge. Twenty gauge. All right. Yeah, that's a nice gun. Yeah, and then uh, it became evident that I I actually was going to take an interest in shooting. After all, well, I was interested in shooting. I eventually, you know, I got into rifle shooting and I was rifle team captain for three years in high school but the shotgun thing that mostly took hold when, when friends started trying to you know, goad me into bird hunting I said oh you know, this, this might be a little fun and you know we shot a few clay pigeons and stuff it became evident that I was gonna I was gonna be a bird hunter dad and I went down to the local coast to coast hardware store and he bought me a used Remington 1112 gauge 
And I was a scrawny little runt for my age. One of my best friends, he was the only kid in school shorter than I was at that age, at that age group. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was small. And that was a lot of gun, but being an auto loader, you know, it didn't kick as hard. Sure. And I used that for a long time. Eventually, you know, I converted the stock English grip and bought a special field barrel for it with choke tubes. And, and I wore that gun out. Some trap shooter had owned it before I did when it had the 30 inch full choke barrel. So it probably had 50,000 rounds to it already before I touched it. And being a kid in the country with a reloading press, I probably put that many more through it. Wow. The thing was getting pretty sloppy when we, I traded it off. I finally traded it off actually to buy it to get a, a nice set of wheels and tires for my dad's truck for Christmas one year. So that was the only circumstance where I would have gotten rid of that gun would be a gift for dad. It, <laughs> it was agreed. So I did. In the meantime, I owned that. I, I always had appreciation for side by side shotguns and, and over unders too. But somebody side by side just loved the way they look. Yeah. So with my own pennies and part-time job money i bought a savage 311 12 gauge and i used that for a for a good number of years and eventually bumped into a, a noble side by side it was made by someone else some spanish company and bought it really cheap i think i bought it for like 150 bucks it was still insanely cheap and then for the money it was an incredibly nice gun and probably she should have hung on to it so through my college years and after college i, I owned a couple inexpensive over and unders and side by side and eventually got to the point where i really want i'd always wanted a fox just i remember looking through the old gun digest book dad had a i still have it it was a 1957 gun digest you know, i've seen pictures of old guns catalogs in there and articles about old guns and but like the fox has always appealed to me and eventually i, I ended up getting a fox 16 gauge it hasn't been that many years ago i think mean, and only four or five years ago, and since then I've slowly but surely picked up one here, one there. You know, old. I look for old guns that are kind of beat up to fix up because I I learned how to do stock work and yep. a number of gunsmithing procedures. So I that's kind of find find ones that have got a lot of wear, so you can buy them at a, at a price you can afford. Then I start fixing them up. I've got one that's just spectacular gun. I never thought I'd own anything like it. I called a guy. He had a Parker ten gauge. And I called him out, and he told me what his reserve on the auction was. And, oh, that's out of my price range. And, so I'm a sucker for pretty old guns. Well, I got one you might want. And he started describing it as a Lefevre DS, which is their, was the plainest model ever made. We talked about full coverage engraving, all this carving. I said, wow, it sounds like someone had a lot of work done to this. And he sent me photos, and I wanted the gun so bad. The price was I actually did have the money. And when the gun arrived, it had serious internal issues. It would fire with the safety on and the top lever was wobbling loose. And I was like, oh man, for the price, I just can't bear sending this gun back. To I took it apart and I had, there were internal parts that were mismatched. These guns, like a 1906 gun, they were all hand built. Every single part on these guns is hand struck. So you can't just mix match from one to the other. And someone had mix match some parts. Let's put four and a half hours into very carefully hand fitting these parts. And the gun has been a great performer for me ever since. And there's where learning additional skills really paid off. But yeah, I do like the old side-by-side guns. They fit me better. A lot of people don't like the older, old classic guns because of the lower comb. Yep. Personally, I think that when trap and skeet games became popular, the, the higher comb kind of went with it. And the higher comb and 
recoil pad location reduces recoil and muzzle jump a little bit. It it just kind of became standardized, and I think a lot of people have grown up in the habit of mashing their cheek down on the stock. And when you do that, a modern gun fits you good. I never got in the habit of mashing my cheek down. I could pull a gun up and just have it naturally where my eye is. And the old guns do that better for me. Until I got on that Fox, I had recut every single stock, on uh, every gun I'd ever owned. Really? Every last one of them, the comb got taken down. Yep. And that Fox gun, like, this thing fits. I, I, mean, I <laughs> got my, my rasp and sanding paper out and I put, so I'd be neat, I put a recoil pad on it, a little bit, and put a recoil pad on it. Wait a minute, this thing fits. I close my eyes, pull the gun up, I open them. That rib is square and that bead is right lined up with my pupil. I never, never touched the comb. And all of the older guns I've owned, I've bought since, with the exception of that fancy Lefevre, which had a trap style stock on it. Yeah. The most I've had to do is take like 40 grit sandpaper to it and then knock a sixteenth of an inch or so off, maybe an eighth, and then smooth it up and refinish it. So for me, the old classic guns actually fit better. Is your Fox a Sterling Worth or is it a Model B? It's a Sterling Worth. Okay. Yep. That's a nice one. Yeah. I, I do think, I mean, there has to be something to it, right? There are so many of those old American guns, whether it's the Parker, the Fox, or the the LC, they all have significantly, or they tend to have more drop than you would find on a modern gun. So obviously those guns were being made a certain way and guns today are not made that way. So there was something going on in the way that people shot guns or fit guns to themselves that dictated that. And if you are very accustomed to shooting a gun with quote unquote modern dimensions, which is typically going to be a higher comb. If you all of a sudden go and pick up a Fox Sterling worth that has two and three quarters, drop at heel typically on a shorter stock so you got that's a really steep angle coming down on that comb and you got a lot of drop there it's going to throw it's going to throw people off and you're going to be probably shooting low and that that is something that varies on old guns too but the sterling wars they were kind of standardized yeah a lot of guns they've varied i've, I've seen some classic guns that the price was really good and i thought hmm, maybe you know, especially a parker you find a good price on a parker it's really hard to pass up uh, look at the stock dimension, like three and a half inch drop at the, uh, on the back of that stock. I thought, well, that's, I just I I can remove wood if I if need be, but yep. when when you look at the back of the uh, top lever, it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, I've seen uh, Parker's and L.C. Smith, I think, in particular, a very wide range of stock dimensions. You look on like Gun Broker, Guns International, so on and so forth. Of these the online for sale sites, it's amazing the wide variety of dimensions you'll find on these guys. Yep. I saw a, a beautiful L.C. Smith, and it was a bar- bargain basement price. It was like a grade three gun, grade two or grade three, the, the, the pre-13 Smith. The length of pull was like 17 inches, which is which is insane. I, I immediately thought about my friend down the street. I have a friend who lives two blocks from me who would probably love that gun. I remember telling him about it. He's seven foot tall. He back in the he was actually first round pick for the New York Knicks in 1969, and he turned them down. <laughs> Believe it or not, he actually he wanted to see the world. He actually played professional basketball for the American Basketball Association, an entity that of course is no longer around. Yeah. The, the, the man's gigantic, and I thought of him. 
Well, there, there really is a stock dimension for everybody out there. If you look long and hard, you'll find them. Yeah, you won't see too many with the 17-inch length of pole, but there's a few. But, you know, but I see a range of 13 up to 15 and a half. Yep. And drop anywhere from an inch and a half to three and a half inches. So that is one nice thing. If you're patient, you look. Yeah. With the classic guns, you can if you know if you know what you need, if you know what dimensions are ideal for you. Right. If you look, you know you'll find one. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about the vintage guns is that they weren't mass produced in the same way that they are today. So today you have, you know, you got a you got a stock cutout and basically they're spitting out one after another all with the exact same dimensions whereas a lot of the old guns were they were they were custom order. It was pretty easy to custom order a, a Fox Sterlingworth with your dimensions and all kinds of options. I mean, people had that capability yep. to order the guns right from the factory, and they were made one by one. And so that's why you see so much, if it's an original gun, you see so much variation in those dimensions. They weren't just made from a cookie cutter. And that's, that's obviously what adds to a lot of people's appreciation for the guns. Oh, I mentioned the fevers. I mean, the actual fevers. Not the fever nitro special. That's not, that's actually an Ithaca gun. Okay. And they're a great gun. If a person wants to get into the vintage gun market on really really little money, the fever nitro special that was made by Ithaca, you almost can't beat them. The the quality is is very high for a very inexpensive gun, and they're and they're built to handle modern loads. So uh-huh. that's a big plus. But the original Lefevers, the, the, which is credited as being by some as the original hammerless shotgun. Okay. The the engineer the engineering is ingenious. They actually don't have a, a barrel hook and hinge pin on those those receivers. It's actually a ball and socket. So it's actually a ball joint, and it's adjustable for wear. So they're they're really neat. But the, the oh, it's it's fascinating. If you ever get the chance to look at one, take it apart and look, and it's absolutely ingenious. They were infinitely adjustable for wear, well, within reason. But, but anyhow, those guns, you talk about you know, hand, you know, custom order stuff, I'm not aware that they ever built any of those guns to send, to send out to hardware stores as quote-unquote production models. Every single gun they built in the short number of years they were in business were, were guns that somebody ordered, whether a customer ordered them or a store said, hey, I want, we want five of these, three of those. They all were... They weren't inventory, if you know what I mean. Yep. Every gun that was built was being built by someone's request. And there was a wide variety of options. The chamber lengths are crazy. I think they have like five different chamber lengths you could choose from. And my 1906 gun, it it, ha- it has two and three-quarters chambers. And then there's no sign that that they were ever extended. Right. I've done some of that work myself. I actually have some of my own tooling. And usually, you, you look, you can tell that there's just a tiniest change in the reflection or something, but who knows? Someone may have done a, a superb job on it. Cause the gun was sent to Germany for engraving, carving. But at any rate, I remember reading that you could have a two and a half inch chamber, a two and nine sixteenths, a two and five eighths, a two and three quarter. I think two may have been an option. Or I'm not sure, but in ten gauge you could have a two and seven eighths, which the three and a half inch ten gauge didn't exist back in those days. So. It's pretty interesting. And that's something you got to watch out for with vintage guns. The chamber lengths do vary. Uh, the, the Philadelphia Foxes will usually have a short chamber. Yep. The Utica ones, you, you know, after a couple of years, they, st- they went to the standard length. A lot of guns you can you can lengthen the chambers. Some you got to be careful though. Some of the, the barrel walls will taper down fast enough 
on the really, really light ones ahead of the chambers. And the European guns are notorious for this, where you don't want to lengthen the chamber because you'll, you'll get beyond minimum wall, safe wall thickness. Yeah. So that's something best left to, to an expert who knows what they're doing. Definitely. It has a wall thickness gauge. But anyhow, so chamber lengths can vary. And the other thing to keep in mind is chokes were tighter. My Fox was sold as a modified and full, and it's, it measures out extra full, full and extra full. I had to ream the left barrel, actually, to get the pattern number five shot. The pattern number five shot and left barrel were terrible. It was just too tight a choke. You know, back in the day when these guns were built, you both basically just had fiber wads, no no protective shot cup, and a lot of times it was cheap chilled lead shot. It wasn't the harder high antimony magnum lead. Yeah, the powders were, were were harsher, so you needed to choke things down tighter. Yep, yep. All right, Gerhardt. Well, we we covered a bunch. I'm going to wrap up here with a couple of quick sort of lightning round questions uh, continuing on guns there do you have i know you have a few different guns to choose from do you have one that you go to more often than any other one? Oh, maybe a gauge i like i like 16 gauge the most okay uh, it's late this late season hunting when i'm expecting longer flushes but not ridiculous range i like that fox 16 it's choked tight and it it throws a really nice pattern at 50 yards if i Use buffered hand loads. It actually th- throws some uh, amazing patterns at sixty yards, which is, says a lot for a sixteen. So it's kind of nice to have a light gun like that that handles so nice that when the chips are down, you have to take a longer shot. At least you can. Yep. For for my blue and rough grouse hunting, got a Lefevre DS, just a, the plain Jane one. That's it's less than six pounds. And it's choked. Skeet and Improved Modified, which sounds like an odd combo, but I just love that gun. And I shoot a really light load. I shoot like a three-quarter ounce load in it for blue and rough grouse because where we hunt them, a 20-yard shot is a very long shot. Yeah. The average shot, I'd say, is by 12, 12 yards. So you don't want to tear the birds up. <laughs> those those would probably be my two go-to shotguns. Sure. I like to use them all, but those, those two are probably my favorites. And what do you like to put through them as far as... Maybe you talked about a three-quarter ounce load shooting a little bit lighter load. What do you like to put through them for shot size? And oh, shot size gets matched to the bird. Yeah. And other than blue and rough grouse, I'm I'm using a one ounce or an ounce and eighth load. I, I hand load all my my ammunition, so I I can take I can load them however I want. Yep. I like a one ounce or ounce and eighth load at only about twelve hundred foot per second. Your patterns are better, and the extra speed just doesn't seem to really get you much. The it tends to net knock the pellets out around more. The real high velocity loads, so when they're not as aerodynamic, they slow down faster anyway. So when you get out at ranges like fifty yards where it would actually make a difference, downrange chronograph tests show that there's really no difference there anyhow. So I just I shoot a, a little bit milder load. It's lower recoil, you get quicker follow up shots, it's easier on your stocks on your old guns that, you know, might yep. have hundred year old wood. Yep. But I just look for just a good, efficient load. I love Number fives for pheasants and most of my grouse, little littler grouse like, oh, but to, uh, let's say the rough grouse, sevens are seven and a halves. Sage grouse, they're a big bird, fives or fours. Chuckers and huns, I usually shoot sevens or seven and a halves. Sixes, a lot of guys like them, but I found that at the ranges where they'd be an advantage, the patterns are usually really poor. I have a couple larger boy, like 12 or 10 gauge guns, where really tight choke, 
a buffered six will work good on long range for checkers and hunts, but it's not something I do very often. That's the basic rundown. Oh, quail. Quail and doves. Open choke, I like eight and a halves. Eights work really good with a tighter choke. When you say buffered, what exactly do you mean by that? Buffering, uh, it's a filler material. Some of your factory loads, like some of your mostly turkey loads nowadays. Back when waterfowling was lead, you, you saw a lot more buffered loads for waterfowling. It's a the commercially available stuff, it's a fine, fine granulated plastic powder. Okay. And it, it gets poured into the shot, and it fills in the spaces between the shot. So when you set a round off, you're asking everything to go from zero to like 800 miles an hour in milliseconds. Yeah. That's a lot of force some pellets are taking, and it makes knocks them out around. That buffer fills in them air spaces and kind of gives the pellets nowhere to deform to. Maybe you could compare it to an egg carton protecting the eggs, but anyhow, that's what it does. And your pellets stay rounder, and rounder pellets fly truer. They don't you know, become flyers. The more of you can keep around, the shorter your shot string and the tighter your pattern. Yep, yep. Okay, yeah. So for for long, longer shooting in the prairie, that's a good thing. If you're If you're shooting woodcock and grouse in the woods, Probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm recalling now my interview when I was down with the guys at Federal Ammunition. I think I recall them talking about the buffered loads. And yeah, knowing that our goal is to have round sphere-like pellets not deformed that are going to be flying outside the pattern, the buffering is dumped into the shot to help prevent shot deformation upon ignition, really. So gotcha. All right, last one for you, Gerhardt. Do you have a favorite pair of Upland hunting boots? I know you cover some country out there, and this <laughs> this is something that I'm going to try to ask almost everybody because it's always such a controversial topic, and it's one of those questions that you know, if you spend some time on any of the Facebook groups, Project Upland Community, or any one of them, boots is one that comes up every other day. There's a handful of questions that. I'm going to try to work into my interviews here so we can kind of build a, a collective of responses, but why don't you give us your opinion and your personal taste for boots, Gerhardt? Yeah, I've, I've definitely got an opinion on it. That my <laughs> boot choice has evolved over the years. I used to just buy, well, I, I wear out boots. I put on thousands of miles hiking every year, so I wear out boots. I used to just buy cheap boots, and well, most of the cheap boots, they left a lot to be desired, so I started buying better stuff. But one common theme I found with the, the so-called hunting boot companies is that their products varied so much. You, you, when you actually found one you liked, well, the next year it, it was dropped from the line. They had something else it seemed like. Yeah. But living in the country where I do, we, we, you've seen Wyoming now. There is a lot of opportunity when the snow hits the ground to slip and get hurt really bad in this country. Yeah. And most boots just don't grip snow and rock that well. And I finally got sick and tired of getting injured. When you stitch your own elbow back together in front of the mirror, it, it, it gets your attention. <laughs> another <laughs> so story for looking, another day. Well, I looked at a, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I looked at a form, a chucker hunter forum years ago, and what, you know, people were like, "What's the ultimate chucker boot?" And well, unfortunately, ninety-five percent of these guys were hunting on dry ground, so it didn't tell me a whole lot. But I did notice a theme, a common theme amongst the guys who were pretty hardcore about. They were going to mountaineering companies, and I thought about that. I live, in, you know, next to the international headquarters for the for maybe the world's largest mountaineering outfit. So 
I know a few things about mountaineering, and I thought, yeah, these, these companies may actually grasp the concept. If you slip, you might die. Yep. <laughs> you know, you got people climbing cliffs and rocks as, as a pastime here. So I started looking at, you know, I actually went on eBay and bought a bunch of used boots, you know, so I could just try stuff cheap to see what I thought was going to work. Sure. And I got this pair of Arctic hedgehogs by North Face, which unfortunately they don't make anything even remotely like that anymore. I thought, hey, I found my answer. These boots allowed me to do things I didn't even know possible. The first time I wore them in the nastiest chucker country I know of, when they were still on the ground, two hours later I got back to the car and I realized I didn't fall once. This has never happened. And I was completely sold on them. And I find out, well, they don't make these anymore and can't find things. So I tried, kept trying things. And I found Solomon has a few products that work really good. There's one called a Chalton. What is it called? Like a CSWP or whatever stamp, all that stuff. You know, it's their winter hiking boot. I've tried their X-Ultras, too. And I, the thing I like about all these boots I've gone to is they're so lightweight. They, they weigh a fraction of what my hunting boots weighed. So I like that, and they've proven to be fairly durable, which in my previous experience with light boots, they didn't last. But these things seem to be pretty darn good. They actually grip snow and ice as well as you you can hope that they, they will. Definitely a, a major improvement. So I've been really happy with those. The X-Ultras don't do the snow as well. They're, they're a few ounces lighter, but these, these Chaltons, they're light enough that they're not ever going to wear you down. And I've kind of settled in on that as my mid to late season boot. When the ground's dry, I wear some of their other products that are, aren't insulated or have a little less insulation. I've really been happy with them. The only, the only gripe I have is I have a really wide foot. So actually, when I buy, actually both boots I buy, I have to use a boot stretcher on them first to get them kind of fit to my foot. Yeah. After that, I just love them. They don't weigh me down, and that makes a difference. Someone once said, you know, you feel okay, you have an extra pound of boot, and you lift your foot 10,000 times on a, you know, a day of hunting. That's yep. 10,000 pounds, you've, extra pounds you've lifted. And you bet. I can tell you this much. At the end of the day, you will feel the difference. Yep. So I've been happiest with those. Everyone has their, their choices, but mm-hmm. from a guy who, who hunts 80 to 100 days a year and spends a lot of time in some very nasty country and slippery conditions, either wet rocks or, or snow, currently those are my favorites. Well, I think that's definitely worth it from somebody that hunts that much and spends enough time in that country. I would definitely take your word for it. So there you have it. On the subject of boots before we close, yeah, there's two things, you can, a couple things you can do to make your boots last a lot longer. Because when you find a good pair, they're usually not cheap and you want them to last. I, I put one coating of boot guard on the toes. Okay. Like bed liner for boots. They said they put two on, but one's enough. And then you, you look where your stitches will rub against brush grass, rocks, or, or that'll eventually wear through your stitching, I put a bead of aqua seal oh. around that. And it eventually wears off, but it keeps, you know, every once in a while, you, I don't mind spending eight bucks on a tube and uh, have to use twice a year. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That, that's worth it. And then silicone spray where your heel rubs on the lining inside. A new pair of boots, it'll help prevent blisters, and it'll also help keep your heel from wearing through your boots. Interesting. Okay. So those tips, no matter what, no matter what people like for a boot, those things will keep them on your feet longer. Pro tip from Gerhard, I like it. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. I had a lot of fun chatting with you, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. I am jealous that you may get out 
bird hunting this afternoon? What do you, you think you're going to go for it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I have to go to the next, drive to the next town anyway, and the next town's in the direction of Chuckers. So, <laughs> what I a problem I to have. I just will. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the dog is laying here on the end of the couch as we speak, and I, I at least owe it to him, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, you do. Mine mine is over here to my right. He's getting restless. He wants to go for a run, so I think I'm going to do that right now. Gerhardt, good luck, man, if you go hunting today. Otherwise, uh, have a great rest of the season. We'll be in touch, and we'll talk soon, all right? Sounds great. You have a good day. All right, talk to you later, man. It's a pleasure. Yep. Bye. Bye. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.